Thank you very much. If you're the type likes to follow along in an actual Bible, Revelation chapter 3, I'm going to unpack this um, incredibly clear, easy to understand book tonight. Mm -hmm. Let's see if we can find ourselves in it. When we, when we read scripture, we want to ask a couple questions. What happened? But more importantly, what is happening in me right now because of it? Um, what difference does it make if we get our head around these things if it doesn't fundamentally change the way we see our whole world after that? And so I want to I preach a sermon tonight. Hopefully we'll find ourselves um, in, in, the, in the middle of it. As always, afterwards, our table set up outside. That's how we give to missions and, and to the poor and the afflicted. I'm not being um, anti-social at all. Um, I have to run very quickly because I'm preaching in the Manical campus tonight. So um, I'll be down there. So I'll see you guys um, in, in next time I'm through. So before I, I even get into that, you guys have been so gracious and so kind, and your leaders have been so good to me. And I, I count it an honor and a privilege to minister at Equipper and Equippers anytime I get a chance. And for all the Equippers being live streamed in tonight, it's so good to be in your churches tonight as well. I do not take that for granted. It's an honor and a privilege. I hope over the course of the weekend, Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection is sent. And scriptures got bigger, not smaller. Okay? So, Revelation chapter 3. This is a famous part of this book where Jesus is giving a revelation to the early church. Now, this should be this should be obvious, okay, but the early church was started under persecution. It was illegal. If you got caught operating in it, the, the sentence was death. And, and the trial was based on atheism, okay? So early Christians were killed for the charge of atheism. The reason is, is because they weren't Judaizers, nor did they believe in the Roman God. So it was very, very difficult. So if you've ever thought, man, it's hard to, it's hard to get a church going in Auckland. What are you talking about, okay? Or, oh, man, this is Masterton. What are you talking No, 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 wait a minute, man. This was Sardis, all right, and Ephesus and Corinth and Philippi and places like this where Paul said, when we were there, we were shamefully treat, treated in much conflict, right? So, so Jesus is trying to right the ship in, in some of these early churches. And this just happens to be um, the one that is written to the church at Sardis. Here's, here's what it says. If you could bring that first one up. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars to the angel of the church at Sardis. Now, there's so much going on here. First, we have to understand and discuss geopolitics of the day, and we're gonna have a quick history lesson. Now, if you just suddenly thought, oh no, I hated history. I think the Ottoman Empire is a furniture store. Relax, relax. We're gonna be, we're gonna be very interesting with this tonight, okay? Because we have to understand the history underneath, the, un underneath this to understand this. So the seven spirits of God and the seven stars is not a boring line that we get to read over. This was a subversive, moving thing written by a guy named named John who's been exiled on the island of Patmos under the authority of a Caesar named Domitian. Domitian. Now, the, the seven spirit, to say historically, uh, he held the seven spirits of God. In a Hebrew understanding, it would just be like saying, this is the testimony of the one who was full of the spirit of God, the full of wisdom, understanding, counsel, power, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. This is the testimony of Christ. This is the testimony of Jesus. But then he throws this, this massive subversive line, and he 
who holds the seven stars. Now, to understand this, we have to understand Domitian. Domitian was the Caesar of the day, and he was a particular narcissist. He made everybody call him king of kings and lord of lords. And the propaganda around the Roman Empire was that Domitian sits on top of the world holding the seven stars in place. Now, how do you get that around the empire? Here's what you did. You printed it on money because money would make its way from Spain to India. There was no electricity, no printing press. Let me just show you one of the official coins of Domitian of that day. If you could bring that next slide up. This is the Domitian star coin. And you can see it says around it, it says Caesar Domitian, God saves, right? But right there, it's Domitian sitting on top of the world, juggling the seven stars in place. So when John says, this is the testimony of the one who is faithful and true, it is he who holds the seven stars. This is not something boring for us to read over. This is a guy that's been exiled by a Caesar who says he's God in flesh, and he's going, Domitian thinks he gets the last word, but he doesn't. Jesus does. Domitian thinks he holds the seven stars in place. Uh-uh. This is the testimony of the one who holds the seven stars. See, the propaganda on Domitian was, was that he wasn't just a man. He was fully God incarnate and in no other name on earth by which men can be saved other than the name of Caesar Domitian. They said he was full of the spirit of two gods, the male god Jupiter and the female goddess Roma. Let, let me show you another coin where he proclaims this loudly. Now, yeah, this is uh, Domitian on the left side. That's the, that's the head side of the coin. And on the tail side of the coin is him projecting the image of Jupiter on the tail side of his coin. So here's what he did, right? Here's what he did. He had this idea. And his idea was, was that Jupiter has his own Olympic-style game. So here's what Domitian did. He, he instituted a biannual celebration of his divinity by instituting a biannual Olympic-style games to his honor. And he humbly called it, wait for it, the Domitian Games. Now, let me tell you this story and tell me where you've heard this before. Here's what he did. He, to show his dominance over the Roman Empire, he divided the entire empire to 12 districts. Uh-huh. And each district had to give up two delegates to travel to the capital city to participate in the Domitian Games. The only district absolved from giving up delegates was the capital city. And these 24, is this sounding familiar to anybody? And these 24 delegates would come together and participate in an event by event fight to the death to celebrate the divinity of Caesar Domitian. When you attended the games, Domitian wanted to create the greatest choir ever created to sing his praises. So when you attended the games, you were given two gifts, a white robe and a gold crown. Why? Because he wanted to create the greatest choir ever created to sing his praises. They would enter into the Roman Colosseum. Caesar Domitian would stand in front of them and they would all stand and sing a hymn of praise to him. It went something like this. We praise you, O Domitian, O son of God, for you alone are worthy of all honor and glory and power and blessing. We praise you, O Domitian, O son of God, for you alone are worthy of all honor and glory and power and blessing. At the end of 
of the song, they would cast down their golden crowns at his feet. Think about your Caesar movies, the Roman Caesar standing there like this, and they're showering him down. Is this making some of the book of Revelation make sense? Oh, by the way, Domitian hired 24 people to follow him around and tell him how awesome he was, right? Think about this, think about this. John says, and I saw the four and 20 elders sitting around the throne and we were wearing white robes and gold crowns and we were casting down our golden crowns around the glassy sea, but we were singing a new song. In other words, I've seen how this ends and Domitian doesn't get the last word, Jesus does. This was not some boring doctrinal bullet point. This is a guy exiled on an island going up yours, Domitian. You're not going to get the last word here. Oh, by the way, are you guys bored? Okay, good, good, good. Because here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. Domitian, the, the Domitian Games, check this out. The Domitian Games had 24 delegates. When 20 died, that left four. And the final four was a four-horse horse race of four horses of a different color. Think Ben-Hur. And they'd go around in these chariots and horses until everybody was dead except one. And they were proclaimed the champion of the Domitian Games. And they were given honorary Roman citizenship. You have 23 dead bodies laying around the Roman Colosseum. The last scene of the Domitian Games was two characters coming on horseback. One was called Death and one was called Hades, and death and Hades came in on horseback. Can you see how this is forming some of this stuff? Oh, oh, by the way, by the way, the, the, the goddess that they said filled Domitian was the goddess Roma. Roma was the goddess of virtue and justice. The coinage on Roma shows her coming into Rome on horseback, dressed virtuously, holding the scales of justice, and there's seven hills on the coin, because Rome was called the city of seven hills. Do you see where John says things like, and I saw a great whore descending on a horse to the city of seven hills. This is not something that's supposed to be seen like literal, like, oh, like honestly, if you're waiting for a literal whore to come out of the sky <laughs> on a horse, what are you talking about, right? That is, because let's just be honest, there's nothing scarier than a whore on a horse. Imagine. <laughs> Right? Crazy. No, 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 no. This is John going, this is John going, hey, that goddess of virtue that you think fills your Caesar, not only is she not virtuous, she's a whore. She's the opposite of that. This is not some boring doctrinal bullet point. This is a guy banished to the island of Patmos going up yours to the entire Roman Empire system and proclaiming a new way to live. And some would call that good news to the angel of the church at Sardis write this now a quick history of Sardis next slide so Sardis was an important part of the Lydian Empire in Persia it was a main road on from Ephesus to the main parts of Asia Minor thus making it important center of buying and selling think of it as Wall Street of, of the day it was built as two parts a lower city 
and an upper city, 1,500 meters high, up a 1,500 meter rock cliff. The best example I can give you from New Zealand is if you've ever seen Cape Kidnappers, right? Where there's a flat spot on top of these 15,000 meter high, whatever. It's, there's a city way up there and then a city way down there. So if you were sort of of the poorer social economic status, you lived down there. But the rich and the affluent, they lived high. It was considered the most fortified city in the entire Roman Empire. It was impenetrable because it was 1,500 meters high. There's no way an enemy could attack you without being covered from an elevated position. Now, to understand this better, we have to go back a bit because Sardis really hit its stride under the rule of a guy named Croesus. Let me tell you about him. Next slide. So under the rule of Croesus, even today in the news, sometimes people might say they were rich as Croesus. Croesus was one of the richest people who's ever lived in the history of the world. How rich he actually is, no one really knows, but let's just agree together. If you're in that discussion, that makes you flipping awesome, okay? It was the first place in the world to master the art of spinning wool. So what they would do, Croesus, if you watch movies that are set before Croesus, people were walking around with whole animals on. What, what Croesus worked out is, is that if you shear the sheep and spin the wool into clothing, the next year the sheep grow more wool. And then you could do it again and again and again. Genius stuff for that day. Today we're like, well, duh, we're New Zealand. We understand these things, right? right? <laughs> it was the first place to make coin in such a way that standardized the amount of gold and silver in each coin. So before Croesus, you never really knew how much gold or silver was in there. You had to do all this measuring and, and you never knew when you were being ripped off. Croesus developed a way to standardize the amount of gold and silver in each coin. And then something crazy happened. Next slide, right? Here's what happened. They discovered the largest deposit of gold yet found in the world up to that time underneath the upper city. So if you're following this, here's what happened. Croesus figured out a way to standardize um, the amount of gold and silver in each coin. And then after that, they found the largest deposit of gold ever underneath his own city, which literally gave him a license to print money. The entire world was looking to him to make their money. Now you have a problem. Why? Because if you have the largest deposit of gold ever found in the history of the world up to that time underneath your feet, lots and lots of people are going to want it. So what do you need? You need a big army to, to, to guard it. Here was what was helpful. They were 1,500 meters high. So they were, they were impenetrable anyway. But here's what Croesus did. Croesus started this large army to protect this stuff. And then he had a 40-foot wall built on top of the 1,500-meter rock face to make it completely impenetrable. He actually went on record to say, my city is unattackable. By the Roman Empire days, they put all the archives there to protect their, their, their actual official records because it was that impenetrable. Here's the issue. Next slide. Uh, go back. Yeah. In 546 BC, Cyrus the Persian attacked and plundered the city with a surprise attack. Here's how that happened. Cyrus the Persian sent spies to find a way into Sardis. And here's what he told them. He said, you know what? You guys go. And if you can't find a way into Sardis, don't come back. Don't bother coming back. I'll kill you. So stay there and die or come back and die. But you're going to find me a way into Sardis. Here's how the story goes. There was an army man whose job was to be the watchman on the wall. And would you agree with me that if your job is to watch the wall of Sardis, that's potentially the most boring job ever, right? And the way it went is, is that the way the story goes is that he fell asleep. And when he fell asleep, his head bobbed. And his helmet came off of his head and went down the face wall and then down the 1,500-meter rock face to the valley below. 
Instead of going to the army barracks and admitting he had fallen asleep or just make up a better story, like I was fiddling when my helmet dropped it, uh-uh. He went down to the valley and fetched his helmet through a secret passageway that was dug for the military only from the middle of the city through the mountain and into the valley. He goes down there to fetch his helmet, not knowing anybody's watching, puts his helmet back on and comes back up into the city through this secret passageway, which revealed to Cyrus the Persian spies the way into the city, right? So 546 BC, while everyone was asleep, Cyrus the Persian comes up to the middle of the city and robs and plunders the place. And when everybody woke up, they did not know what hit them because he came as a thief in the night. In 398 BC, Antiochus the Great performed a surprise attack through the same tunnel. In other words, once everybody was dead that, that remembered that, once they forgot and got complacent again, the same thing happened. In 334 BC, Alexander the Great did it again. This group of people kept getting complacent because of how safe they were and being surprised when all their stuff was taken from them. Which leads me to this question. Is Auckland, New Zealand much different than Sardis? You live in one of the top 10 most affluent places on earth. A nation with motor cars, paved roads, stores that prepackage food for us, clean water in our tap, machines that do washing, other machines that do drying, world-class healthcare right down the road, and it's largely free, and you're protected with a military alliance with the United States of America. If someone came to attack you, America would be here within hours, okay? And that's a good thing for New Zealand, because I think you have one fighter jet, all right? But... <laughs> But listen, listen, you're protected. You're relatively, like none of us here are living in fear of being attacked by a warlord. None of us here are living in fear of military onslaught. None of us here. And here's the problem, right? When we're affluent and we have money, I bet, I bet in the last 30 days, every person in this room paid $5 for a cup of coffee at some place. I bet, I bet in the last 30 days, everybody in this room went to a shop and had someone cook food for us. I bet we did. I bet we did. And when we live with that kind of influence, this is how much money we have now. There are people in Auckland making a full-time wage, massaging people's shoulders when they feel tight. That is a lot of money. There is somebody in Auckland this week making a full-time wage, permanently removing women's facial hair. That's a lot of money. My great-grandmother didn't have that much money, right? You should have seen him. It was unbelievable. And here's what happens, right? Here's what happens. We're living with affluence. None of us, none of us in this room are going hungry this week. We're living with affluence. Like, heck, even if you're, even, even if you have to be on the dole in New Zealand, you're still in the richest 7% of the whole world. We have affluence, protection, power, privilege. Our biggest worry is, where do I charge my phone? Did the 4G go out? And what happens in those situations is we get complacent and we fall asleep. And before we know it, somebody swoops in and steals what is rightfully ours. I don't think we're much different than these folks. 
That was under the rule of Croesus. This happened. Now, that was the political side. Let's talk about the religious side. Next slide. So the religious rule, Sardis was dominated by the religious rule of Kibla, the daughter of Zeus and twin of Apollo. Kibla, Kibla is also known as Artemis to the Greeks and Diana to the Romans. So Kibla was this female goddess. Actually, I found a picture of Kibla. Let me show you a picture of Kibla. Here she is. In all her, there she is. <laughs> There's Kibla. She, she, was the, she was the main center temple of Ephesus, Sardis, right? You can see she's quite sexual. She's quite sensual. She's, she's got like 20 sets of breasts, right? right? She's a very sensual sort of goddess. And let's just be honest, even when they're 3,000 years old and made of stone, a 20-breasted woman is just awesome, right? Just awesome. She, had, she received worship through all these crazy things, these outdoor immorality parties, right? Let me just be clear about this. Whatever the sickest, craziest thing going on in Auckland tonight is, it's Nickelodeon compared to what was going on in Sardis, okay? Kibbola was the goddess of fertility. Like she could, obviously she can maintain a lot of life. That was the idea, right? She, she was the goddess. She was also the goddess of the hunt, so, so before, before you went and to, remember there was no grocery stores back then. So, so before you went as, as a hunting party to go find food for your family, here's what you would do. You'd go by the temple of Kibbola and you would give an offering and ask Kibbola to trick small animals to come into your past so that you may have food to eat. She was the goddess of the hunt. Here's the other problem. She was also the goddess in charge of protecting small animals, right? <laughs> so there was a pretty, a conflict of interest, right? Now, Here's, here's what happened, right? Here's what happened, right? There's this one time, and here's this one time in Sardis where they had a famine. They couldn't find food. Now think about this, right? If you're an ancient, primitive, superstitious sort of group of people, if you can't find food, who have you ticked off? Kibbola. She's obviously upset. You haven't given enough. So here's what they did. The men of Sardis went to the temple of Kibbola begging her for help. They still couldn't find food. They gave more money. They still couldn't find food. They gave more money. They still couldn't find food. So here's what they did. At the last straw, 1,500 men in one religious frenzy. Because how does a group of men prove to a female that they're loyal to her? What do you do? What's your most prized possession? Here's what they did. 1,500 men in one religious frenzy, self-castrated. And then they took their testicles and they put them on the altar to Kibbola and allowed them to be burned so that they could find food. By the way, in 1918, archaeologists found the temple of Kibbola and they restored it and it is now a tourist attraction in Turkey. So if you're ever in Turkey on a tourist tour and you find the altar to Kibbola, don't sit on it. <laughs> It has a lot of history, <laughs> right? By the way, <laughs> by the way, Paul built a thriving church there. Let's talk about that for a second. Paul went into Ephesus, 
Sardis, places like this, and built a thriving church. How do you build a thriving church in a place with that kind of debauchery and paganism? Well, it's not hard. Here's what Paul did. He walked in, and instead of telling everybody why she's evil, he saw her as powerless, and so he gave that no air at all. Here's what he did. He walked in and said, hey, I serve a God who loves you whether you do rituals or not. I serve a God who will feed you because he loves you. I serve a God who will bless your women with fertility just because he loves you. And he will provide food for you and you can keep all your bits intact. <laughs> Join us. Right? It's just a much better story, right? This ticked them off. So here's what they did. They had Paul arrested. How do we know that? Because it's recorded in Acts 19. They have Paul arrested, and they bring him to the pagan judge, and they say, we want you to put him in jail. And the pagan judge says, what do you want me to do with him? He has not robbed our temple, nor has he blasphemed our goddess one time. That's the kind of church I want to build. Could, could we do that? Could we build a church to the glory of Jesus Christ without having to let the whole world know everything we're against? Yeah. Right? Right? Come on! Right? Right? Like it's like, it's like wait, I don't need to attack kibble. I'm just going to be for a lot of good things. I throw up in my mouth when I see Christians on the internet explaining everything we're not for. It's not compelling. If we actually believe it doesn't have power, then treat it like it doesn't have power and ignore it, right? My God. Good grief. By the way, <laughs> Jesus overcame Sardis. What more could he do in Auckland? A place with religious freedom and protection and affluence. Like when I hear Christians talk, the Christian's faith in God is so small, you know? You are Christians, Christians today, they talk because they've never been persecuted, right? So they have to make up something to be grumbling about. And it's like, oh God, what are we gonna do? Oh no, what if labor takes over? Oh man, oh Lord. Like what, Jesus is like, what labor? What, we overcame Sardis, bro. The Roman Empire. Let me just give you a quick history of the Spirit of God, okay? The, the God that you're connected with overcame the Egyptian Empire. The Babylonian Empire. The Assyrian Empire. The Persian Empire. The Roman Empire. The rule of the Greeks. The Dark Ages. I think he can handle Donald Trump. Right? Right? Oh, no. What if labor... Listen. If labor took over everything, it's still better than that. And they were able to build a thriving church of Jesus Christ without saying one bad thing about the other gods. May we be those people. A people who makes Jesus so good that you don't have to empower it with being negative about everything else. <laughs> now... With that as the historical backdrop of the geopolitical situation in Sardis, let's see 
if this makes Revelation chapter 3 make any sense. Next slide. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're actually dead. That's, uh, you could also say asleep. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in my sight. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what time I come. This is a city who has a history of falling asleep and people robbing from them. Right? Next, next slide. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Keep going. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, you might be thinking, Shane, okay, first, pretty interesting history lesson. Fairly funny. Cool photos. So what? It's 2019. It's Auckland. What do we do with this? Glad you asked. Next slide. <laughs> Wake up. What are you doing? Have you gotten complacent? Wake up. But you didn't think God was done with you. Look, in a room this size, it is improbable that there's not at least a few of you who are thinking about quitting. Don't you quit. Don't you get complacent. What happens, what happens in affluence and relative security is that we lose our sight on how much we actually need God. And this message is just as relevant today as it's ever been. It might be time for us to wake up. And only you know if you've fallen asleep at the wheel and you're just going through the motions. Only you know if you've lost sight of the infinite possibilities that God has for your life. Because here's what happens. At some point when you start your relationship with God, there are the voices of the infinite possibilities of what God could Use for your life. It's loud inside, but then dis discouragement, disagreement, that one loud plonker on the internet, something happens, budget struggles, government codes that don't allow you to move in certain things. A, a mortgage banker says you're not worth the risk. Something happens. Something happens that the discouragement makes the voices of the infinite possibilities begin to die in, on the inside. They get lower and lower and lower. And my prayer for you tonight is that the voices of the infinite possibilities that God has for your life comes alive inside of you again and you wake up and you grasp this thing because what you do matters how you live matters God has a massive plan for this nation that's going to require the next generation to get on board with what he's been doing before to be firmly connected to the past while redreaming what God might be doing in the future to be firmly connected to the past while reimagining what God might be up to in the future it might be time for us to wake up Maybe let's say it this way. Next one. Your deeds are not finished. Your deeds are not, you're not done. You're done. 20 years or so you've been going and as a movement, a hundred and something. Well, in the whole world, this movement does really well staying firmly connected to its roots while reimagining what God might be doing in future generations. But you're not done. No way. You're not, you, I would even go to say as much as I'm inspired by your movement and by what you do, and I've, I've preached in equippers all over this world, as much as I'm inspired by it, and it's one of the best movements in the world, make no mistake about it, but you're not done. Yeah. Your, your deeds aren't finished. You 
can't rest on the laurels of yesterday. No way. You got to wake up and dream again, move again, act again, believe again, create that dream again. See, we get complacent and we, we sort of fall asleep at the wheel. But Jesus is calling Sardis and Auckland to wake up and realize our, our deeds are not yet finished. You haven't begun to experience what God might do. The best days are definitely ahead of it. And here's the thing, right? If I was to ask this question, are the best days for equippers ahead of it or behind it? What would we quickly say? Yeah, yeah if you have to think about that, you're in the wrong place, okay? The best days are yet ahead of it. Well, if the best days are yet ahead of it, does it stand to reason that the best people who are going to take it to the next place might not even know you exist yet? And we have to create space for those people. We have to create room for those people. We have to create space for their talent and their energy and their passions and their personalities. We have to believe that our deeds are not yet finished, which means their deeds aren't either. And they're going to be welcome here. Wake up. Your deeds are not yet finished. Maybe say it one, another way. Next slide. Remember and hold it fast. Remember. Sometimes we just forget to remember. Remember what God has been up to. Take, take account of what's going awesome in your life. Like for most of us, there might be an exception, but for most of us, right? For most of us, if God never did one more thing for any of us, our life's still awesome, right? It's just going really, really, really well. Our life's going fantastic. And we, we need to remember that. We need to remember what God called us to. We need to remember that dream. Jesus to Sardis says, remember, come back to that vision and hold it fast. This is ancient rabbinical teaching, okay? What ancient, and this mirrors it so well. What ancient rabbinical teaching says is that a fleeting imagination will not harm you nor help you. Right? So if you just have a fleeting, lustful thought, so a, a, a bad, a, a destructive thought comes into your mind, and it's fleeting. So some sort of lust just happens. And it comes in, and it goes. A, that will not, that's not going to hurt me. It's not going to hurt me. But when that lustful thought becomes a disciplined imagination, and I create her as an object of my lust, now it'll destroy me. But a fleeting imagination is not going to hurt me. But nor will it help me. This is why we get so frustrated when people show up every week with this, God's going to do big things. God's going to do awesome things. And then the next week they're on to something else. Like God's going to do something more over here, right? And they can never, ever hold that vision fast. What the rabbis taught was, was that a fleeting imagination cannot hurt you nor help you. But a disciplined imagination will draw your reality to where you're seeing it. If you can hold it fast. Is there a gap between what you're believing God for and what you're actually experiencing? I hope so. Because if there's not a gap between what you're believing God for and what you're actually experiencing, then you don't have any faith in operation. Faith requires us to deal with that gap between what we're believing God for and what we're actually experiencing. And we need to hold it fast. Equippers in Auckland needs a building. Let's hold it fast. Do you have a building right now? No, but that's where we operate in faith. And we keep seeing it, declaring it, visualizing it, feeling it, feeling it. Equippers as a movement wants to start five more churches in all these locations in the next few months. That is awesome. Do you have it yet? No, you don't. But you can remember and you can hold it fast. You can hold it fast. Discouragement be gone and let the voices of the infinite possibilities come alive inside of us. 
Let me say it another way. Next slide. Repent. Simply return to your dream. Repent. If I could do anything for us tonight, I'd, I'd like to remove the shame of repentance. See, often in our imagination, when we say repent, we limit repentance to, I've done something bad and I need to be sorry for it. So it's shame and guilt based. And look, if you're doing something that's gonna destroy your life, turn around, no question. But repentance shouldn't just be done when we've done something bad. Repentance just means to turn our shoulders and start heading towards our destiny again. It just means to return, to turn our shoulders around, to change the way we think about something. There's a way that you could be doing nothing wrong, but God is calling you to change the way you think about something. And that is just as much repentance as anything else. Which leads me to this, is there anything God's calling us to change the way we think about something? Is there any, is there any place that we've been urged, we're uncomfortable with it. It makes us uncomfortable because it's requiring change, but maybe we're, we're called to repent and return to our dream. Look, look, Netflix is good, but it's not what it's cracked up to be. Fortnite is good, but it's not what it's cracked up to me. It's not. That next promotion is good, but it's not what it's cracked up to be. The only thing that's, cracked, that's what it's cracked up to be is when we intentionally pursue those things that God has called us to do in our world, right? And he's reminding these people, he's like, hey, hey, wake up. Your deeds are not yet finished. Remember and hold it fast and then return to it. Maybe we could say it this way, one last way. Next slide. Be encouraged by each other. I think it's interesting the way Jesus ends this with John. He just says, hey, it's a weird sort of sentence. He says, hey, look around you. There's a lot of people who haven't sold their clothes. What a weird sentence in the middle of all that. But not when you think about it historically. Could you imagine trying to pioneer this new Jesus movement in a place called Sardis, where one, it was illegal, two, you could be put to death for it, three, your very presence intimidated the, the, the system of temple worship of the day. Could, and by the way, everybody around you has lots of money and security. Could you imagine trying to explain to people who had everything they ever need why they need Jesus? It's very difficult. Could you imagine living in a place like that? Imagine living in a place where people had everything they ever need, so to try to explain why they need God is, is kind of difficult. A little bit. Yeah. And, and could you imagine in the middle of that where a neighbor doesn't really understand why you give to the poor intentionally? Why would you give to people who can't do anything in return for you? Why would you do that? And trying to explain why we do things like that? Trying to give an answer for why we live the way we do? Could you imagine some of the discouragement? And you might, at some point, start believing that you're alone. No one, no one cares about God anymore. No, no one cares about this stuff. Is our message outdated? What's going on with this? Jesus says to Sardis, I think he'd say the same thing to us, look around. Lots of people haven't sold their clothes. You'd start to, be, you'd start to think of Sardis, I think everybody has sold their clothes, which was a metaphor for entering into wickedness. Entering into this Kibbeleh debauchery, entering into this Roman Empire system, entering into the worship of Domitian. It would be easy to go, I think everybody's so, I think everybody, I'm just alone. And there's nothing more demoralizing in the world than feeling alone. Actually, in the Bible, the first thing God ever said wasn't good was loneliness. Right. 
Go read it. It is good. It's good. Oh, it's good. It's good. Oh, yeah, it's good. Oh, it's good. Oh, that's not good. It is not good. Loneliness, the feeling of loneliness. And I think if I could piggyback on what Pastor Kathy did in her session at Equipper, which I thought was brilliant. She did a whole session on being encouraging, being encouraging to one another. That actually building a thriving church culture can be complicated, but it doesn't have to be. It can sometimes be as simple as reminding each other that you are not alone. Because here's the problem with something like this. Here's the problem with a, a, a church environment that is as awesome as I just experienced, right? You can experience, to me, the best worship in New Zealand, some of the best worship in the world. Everybody's up here jumping. Josh is getting them riled up, moving his head back and forth. Right? Like, I, I've watched that man do five sessions of Equip Her, get up this morning and do this morning, He's not even on the stage tonight, and I'm watching him. I don't even know what to call that. <laughs> but I know I'm impressed that he had that much energy. And here's the, here's the problem, right? Here's the problem. There's a way that you can come in to something like this and for an hour and 15 minutes actually experience it. You can. You can actually experience it and go, man, that was awesome. But then when you leave, you're lonelier than ever before. And as a church, we got to make sure that doesn't happen. How do we do that? We join e-groups. Right? We intentionally find the outsider here and give them a word of encouragement tonight. My challenge to you tonight is before you leave, that you find someone and give them a word of encouragement. It might be something as simple as, you're a good mom. You're a good dad. Hey, you are not alone. When that spirit of encouragement comes over us, like, you are not alone. To Sam and Kathy and the leaders here, you're not alone. You're not. Now, I don't care what you go through. You're not alone because I'm in your life, which means I'm one flight away. Well, actually, I'm a one-hour flight by a six-hour flight by a 12-hour flight. So in that sense, you're alone for a day. But, <laughs> but you're not alone. Well, watch this. Watch this. Let me show you this. Next slide. Watch this. This is from, this is Elijah. And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. Turn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. I'm the only one left. Now they're going to kill me. Four verses later, watch what God says to him. Next slide. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. In other words, you think you're alone? No way. 7,000 of you. Sometimes our perspective feels alone. We're not alone. Look around you. You're in a great place. Look, we're all in this together. Look to the angel at the church of Sardis. Maybe we can say it this way. To the angel at the church at Auckland. Say this. Wake up. Wake up. Have you gotten complacent? Your deeds are not yet finished. Remember and hold it fast. Return to the voices of the infinite possibilities God has for your life. Believe again, dream again, act again, and realize you are not alone. Until I see you next time, everybody, grace and peace. God bless.